Today we're talking about Mark chapter 5. And before we get into the text, we're going to take a quick look at the region of Israel as it existed in the first century to give us some context for what we're about to read. Now, the region that we call Israel today, in the past, was broken up into many regions itself. So in the first century, uh, we'll start with Jerusalem. That was the capital city of the area and uh, was in a region that at that period was called Judea. Uh, That harkens back to the old divided kingdom or the tribe of Judah that inhabited that region. Now, north of that would be a region called Samaria. If you recall back to the divided kingdom after Solomon, this was the northern kingdom of Israel, and that, of course, is a little confusing. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin. This northern kingdom of Israel itself uh, in the first century is called Samaria. That was resettled by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC and really contained a mix of peoples that, that had a pseudo-belief in the, uh, what we would consider the canonical uh, Jewish beliefs of, of the period. And so those people were very much looked down upon by the Orthodox Jews of the first century because they didn't adhere tightly to the beliefs that the people in Jerusalem had believed. So the people uh, who considered themselves, uh, quote, real Jews would have avoided that region entirely if they could. When they traveled, they would try and go around it. They did not want to mix with those people or interact with them in any way. North of Samaria, we would have the region of Galilee. And this, of course, is where Jesus, uh, you know, grew up uh, in Nazareth. He's living there now in Capernaum during his ministry. There's this region called the Sea of Galilee, Uh, That is, uh, if you're familiar with the map, that kind of harp-shaped lake in northern Israel, that's the the region of Galilee. Now, in this period of the first century, we believe that there were, in fact, what you would consider Orthodox uh, Jews living in that region. But they were sort of kind of an agricultural community, and and they certainly had a dialect, as we know from the Gospels. Uh, when Peter is in Jerusalem and Jesus has been arrested, uh, one of the girls who's a servant of the high priest recognizes Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, recognizes Peter's uh, dialect or his speech very quickly. I think this would be very similar to today in the United States. The people from the northern United States and the people from the southern United States have distinct ways of speaking, and uh, those two groups of people can quickly recognize someone from another group. And I think that's what was happening there. Um, Galilee would be perceived as kind of backwater, a bunch of hicks. They would certainly be seen as as uneducated and so looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem. Now, broader than that, uh, if you consider the east side of the Sea of Galilee, today we call that the Golan Heights. Uh, In that period, that may have been settled by Gentiles and by Greeks. And uh, certainly we think that there was a mix of different peoples who were, were or weren't Jewish in that region. And then south of that is a region, um, again, east of the Jordan River that we would have called the Decapolis. Uh, it's a Greek word to say the Ten Cities. And that Greek word gives it away. This was probably a Gentile settled region of towns, villages, and people who were not necessarily Jewish in their culture or their customs. Okay. With that in mind, let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 5, and then we'll discuss it. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. 
This man lived in the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons of his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked, asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about two thousand in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over the boat in the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt her body, that she had been freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see, the People crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? <laughs> but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion. With people crying and wailing loudly, he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? 
The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's talk about this text. First, I'm going to back up to the very beginning and kind of uh, reiterate that Jesus' ministry is essentially focused on miracles that involve regeneration, renewal, and transformation. First, we see here that Jesus is traveling in a region that is probably full of Gentiles. And we, we know this because of the pigs who are being tended on the hill um, by the people of the region. Remember, the law of Moses says that Jews are not to eat pork. And that is even true today for Orthodox Jews. They do not eat uh, pigs. The fact that there is livestock in this region where farmers are tending pigs suggests that either these are Gentiles or they are Jews who are not following strictly the Mosaic law. Now, when Jesus comes upon this man who is obviously very, very sick, he immediately recognizes that this man is demon-possessed. And in fact, the demons that are possessing this man recognize Jesus as well. want to kind of reiterate something too about this period of history that spiritualism was a big deal and knowing the name of someone implied that you had great power over them whether it was a spirit or another human being remember that if you were a master you would call your slave by their name because that gave you power over them but the slave would never be allowed to call their master by by his name Here you see that the demons are trying to gain power over Jesus by immediately saying Jesus' name and calling it out. In in a way, trying to say, I have power over you, Jesus, because I know your name and I can command you. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? So they know his name and they know his status. They know who he is as as a person, as a being. And then they try and command him, swear to God that you won't torture me. So here you see the demons trying to one-up Jesus before he gets them and stop Jesus from casting them out or destroying them. But Jesus, of course, being the son of God, is not controlled by demons. In fact, he has the control over the demons. And Jesus immediately rebukes them and says, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then you see Jesus ask, what is your name? Now, we would know, of course, that if Jesus was divinely the Son of God, he would have known it. What he is trying to do here is get the demons to give Jesus power in their own mind. I'm going to make the demon tell me his name so that not only do I have power over it, but he has willingly given me that power. And they do. The demon or demons themselves say, my name is Legion, for we are many. If you are a... a, one of the people who are reading this of the period, you have immediately recognized the significance of this interchange, which today is kind of lost on us. The demon now is under the complete control and authority of Jesus. Now, 
it's strange to us too. Why does Jesus send these demons into these pigs and not destroy them? There's different um, arguments for this. One of, of course, is that the demons themselves will not be destroyed, destroyed until the end times, which we know they will be thrown into the pit uh, by God uh, as a final act of judgment at the end of the world in Revelation. So their time is coming. But here, I think Jesus is trying to make a physical point to demonstrate the uh, power of the spiritual realm. This man who was acting crazy suddenly is going to be in his right mind. He's going to be healed. He's going to be calm. He's not going to be cutting himself anymore. But I think Jesus wanted to make a very visible demonstration to the people of this region of the spiritual attack that this man was undergoing. So he does allow the demons to inhabit those pigs, and then he has those pigs throw themselves into the sea. I want you to imagine for a moment, I don't know if you've ever seen a a herd of wild pigs, uh, maybe on the internet or or in real life, um, but it's quite a sight to see many uh, pigs suddenly running in a stampede going one way or the other, and they seem to do this quite a bit. You see them, all of a sudden, these these tame livestock, these, these domesticated animals suddenly run wild, throw themselves into the sea and drown themselves, which would be very unusual for an animal to do. Of course, uh, most animals would avoid water or uh, certainly try and save themselves. But these animals all essentially destroyed themselves here. This would have been a very shocking and visible sign, physical sign, to the people of the region of the power of the spiritual corruption that this poor man had endured. Now, the next thing you might notice in this story is very interesting. You remember back how in uh, earlier chapters and, of course, in uh, the other Gospels, Jesus is always very careful early in his ministry to tell Jews who he has uh, healed or saved, don't go and tell a bunch of people what has just happened. Keep it to yourself. Or maybe go tell your priest so you can be uh, renewed for your community. But here he says, To the man, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Essentially, he's saying, go and tell the world what you have just heard. Now, scholars are looking at this saying, this is probably because this is a Gentile region. And remember, one of the reasons why Jesus told the Jews when he perform miracles not to tell others is he's trying to buy himself some time in this community so they don't immediately proclaim him the next king or messiah and bring the wrath of Rome down on them too quickly. He will allow that, but he's waiting. He's he's going to allow that when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday for the last week of his life. And you can see how quickly the Jewish leadership and the Roman Empire essentially come hard down on him and his followers. So he's trying to delay that. But the fact that he's allowing this man to go to his family probably suggests he's in um, this Gentile region. These are probably Gentiles or non-practicing Jews. And so they, they are going to go and tell a bunch of people, probably without the risk of bringing the Roman Empire and the Jewish leadership down on them. Well, that's exactly what he goes and does. Now, there's also this interchange, how this man wants to, when he's kind of cleaned up his act, 
follow Jesus, and there's some suggestion here that he may have actually wanted to become one of Jesus' actual disciples, like close disciples, one of his 12. But first of all, it's probably true this man is not Jewish. He's certainly not a practicing Jew. And we know that Jesus came to call the Jews first, and all of his disciples were Jewish men. And so it probably wasn't appropriate to allow this man to follow him. And given his his track record and his past, um, probably would not have settled well with the people who um, what he was preaching to. So Jesus does not allow that. He says, no, you need to go home to your family. You need to restore your family and yourself and get your act together. Now, the next couple of miracles here are remarkable. Up till now, we've seen Jesus do some pretty extraordinary things. He has he has healed a man of his demonic possession or or his uh, mental disability. We've seen him heal people of their sicknesses, their illnesses. We've seen him calm the storm, commanding nature itself. But here we have a man, a synagogue ruler named Jairus, who comes to Jesus and says, "Jesus, I want you to heal my little my little daughter, who is dying." Okay. This brings up a really good point that is often asked, and I get this question quite a bit. Can we pray in faith to have other people healed who may or may not themselves even know Jesus or have faith themselves? The answer is yes. And this is the biblical proof that you can, in fact, do that. You, as a believing Christian, can pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have faith. I want you to heal my daughter, my father, my mother, my friend, my sister, brother, my husband. They may not even be believing Christians, but I believe, Jesus, that you can heal them. And this text is proof that Jesus can heal them. Of course, he can do anything. But I think it says you with your faith, can pray for others to be helped. And that is biblical. Now, I think that Jesus delayed this on purpose. I think he knew that what was about to happen to this little girl and thought, you know what? I'm going to make an even bigger statement than I've made in the past. In the past, Jesus has healed people who are already alive and healed them of their illness so that they can be restored But I think Jesus knew this little girl was going to actually die. And he wanted to wait to demonstrate that his power was even greater than people had imagined. And he does this by this interlude of allowing this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years to come to him and have this kind of uh, uh, intermission miracle, right? This woman who had been bleeding, you can imagine, uh, we're not entirely sure what the condition was. Luke, in his gospel, seems to intimate that this was an incurable disease, and you would you would certainly be right in assuming that if she had been suffering for 12 years uh, without help. You see this passage, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. This gets back to the kinds of miracle workers and so-called faith healers or charlatan doctors of the age. There was no understanding of medical health care as we have today. And people would essentially spend all of the money they had on these, you know, essentially, uh, you know, snake oil workers 
to get these miracle cures that never really helped them. Obviously, this woman was suffering medically and financially, and because she was bleeding, we can also assume that uh, since uh, they have returned now to the other side of the lake, this is probably back in Galilee where there were Orthodox, pious Jews. She was probably a Jew. The synagogue ruler Jairus implies there's a synagogue in the region, and um, this this is a community of Jewish believers. So if this woman was bleeding, she was almost certainly ostracized from her community. Um, women who underwent their monthly period or were bleeding um, for other reasons could be essentially sequestered or banished from their community until that bleeding was gone because they were perceived as unclean. Now, I'm not going to get into the argument of whether it's right or wrong. That's not the point of what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you what actually is fact. The fact is she was probably seen as an outcast of this society. Now, Jesus, of course, we know came for these very people, the people who were outcasts. You might be an outcast listening to this. Jesus came for you and he came for this woman. Now, I want you to imagine this woman who is considered an outcast bleeding, sick, wounded, not healthy. She sees Jesus. What is the first thing she does? She runs into the crowd. Imagine this. This poor woman runs into the crowd, bumping in to all of these pious Jewish people trying to get to Jesus, making her way through the crowd, and at the very end, touching Jesus. If you are a pious Jew of the period, what is happening to all of those people in the crowd who this woman is bumping into? That's right. They are becoming unclean according to the Mosaic law. So she is taking a huge risk by doing this. By bumping into those pious Jews, her uncleanliness is uh, technically rubbing off on all of those people around her. And what happens when she touches Jesus? Now, if Jesus was, in fact, just a man, he would have become unclean by her touching him. But what actually happens? As soon as she touches Jesus, she becomes clean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. And she is healed. This is not an ordinary man, folks. She has been restored, and her faith was part of that equation because Jesus almost always allows the faith of people to allow the Holy Spirit to heal them. Their faith is important for that. Now, this is the reason why Herod, when Jesus is on trial, says, perform magic tricks for me. Jesus does not perform magic tricks for unbelievers. (laughs) He uses people's faith to allow healing to happen and and miracles to occur. He only uses miracles generally when people already have some level of faith. She believed, and so Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, healed her. What a great moment this is in the first century for Judaism, because now we have our Messiah actually healing, restoring people, and because she was made clean, she would allow to be reintegrated back into her society. Now, we get back to 
the healing of Jairus' daughter. Remember, uh, Jairus had come, my daughter is sick. Well, now, since this has happened, his daughter has died. And they even say, why bother the teacher anymore? (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, ignoring them. Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, I want you to think about that and put yourself in Jairus' shoes. This was your daughter, and you had asked God to heal her, and she died. What is the first thing you're going to think? It didn't work. My faith is crushed. I I don't believe. Jesus is trying to say here, nothing is impossible for me. Nothing. And if you still have any kernel of belief here, I am going to reward that. I am going to support that. I am going to show you that your faith matters. So he immediately takes his closest disciples and the family members of this girl. Remember, Jesus does want eyewitness accounts of his miracles so that they are they are validated. Many of these faith healers of the period would take people alone, one-on-one, take them away, bring them back, and say they're healed. Well, there was no proof that they were healed. Jesus wants eyewitnesses here. Now, I make it a point to say who is the who is the writer and who is the audience here. I think we learn a couple of very interesting things about Jesus in this passage. He goes up to the girl's room, and he's speaking to her, Jesus speaks in Aramaic, Talitha kum. Oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? The author has recorded that Jesus spoke to this girl and spoke in Aramaic, which would essentially be the Hebrew of the period. Suggests to us that Jesus speaks Aramaic. And people, I know this might sound weird to you, but, but there are scholars that look back and, and ask, did Jesus speak Hebrew? Did he speak Aramaic? Did he speak Greek? At least in Mark, Often when Jesus speaks to people in his own community, he speaks in the language of what we call Aramaic. And that's very interesting. That tells us something about him and that community. It also tells us that because the author here explains what Talitha Kum means, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. That means the audience for this book of Mark is probably not Jewish. At least it's not Aramaic Jewish. Well, it tells you something else. Mark was not just written for the Jewish community. What happens here? What happens is one of the most amazing miracles of the entire New Testament. Kind of tacked on at the end of chapter 5, Jesus raises a human being from the dead. I don't know about you, but in some ways I can even see how control of weather is not even as amazing as raising a human from the dead the grave. Why? Because death is so permanent in our minds. And it is. uh, Human medicine has gotten to the point where we can sustain life even when life has been damaged in a coma, accident, illness, on life support. But once once the spark of life is gone, (laughs) no matter what you see in the movies, it cannot be returned, at least by human beings. And we cannot bring people back to life who have died and have been confirmed dead. Jesus does it. And he does it in a supernatural and a wonderful way, a restorative, regenerative way. So now we see kind of a complete picture of who Jesus really is. A teacher, a miracle worker. He's a loving father and friend, but he has the power over illness. He has the power over the spiritual realm. 
He has the power over the natural universe, and he has the power over life and death itself. What an amazing chapter. Thank you for joining us. Tune in next time when we talk about Mark chapter 6. Mm-hmm.